The Forum on Workplace Inclusion's 2021 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. We're excited to announce a brand new forum learning opportunity called Forum Professional Development Labs. Our Professional Development Labs, or PDL for short, are half-day interactive learning experiences intended to develop professional competencies that support leaders in reaching the next level in their DEI leadership. Unlike traditional workshop sessions, PDLs are goal-oriented and include personal and professional action and accountability planning for next-level leadership. Unique to the PDL learning experience, each PDL includes action planning breakout sessions. The action planning breakout sessions give individuals a chance to participate in small group work that results in having their own goal-oriented action plan to take what they learned at the PDL and apply it in their workplace or organization. We're kicking off this brand new, exciting learning opportunity with our first PDL called Engaging Religious Diversity in the Workplace, Building Your Interfaith Strategy and Skill Set. Join keynote speaker Ibu Patel of Interfaith Youth Corps and other special guests for this brand new, action-oriented, half-day learning experience. The PDL will be held on November 8, 2021 and will be offered as a virtual conference format, complete with breakout sessions. If you've enjoyed the Forum Workplace Inclusion Annual Conference or you've always been interested in attending it, then you don't want to miss this new opportunity. For more information, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Donate to the forum. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast series brought to you by Best Buy. I'm Ben Rue, Program Manager here at the Forum. We're really looking forward to today's podcast, Interlocking Inequities, White Supremacy and Ableism, with Ali Strong-Martin and Ashley Ullman of LifeWorks. This podcast will lead listeners through a discussion about how ableism and white supremacy interlock to hinder inclusion. Though one of the most intersectional protected classes, people with disabilities are often kept from full participation in communities and workplaces due to lingering bias and unaddressed discrimination. For disabled people who carry additional marginalized identities, these gaps become even more vast. This leads to disproportionate rates of unemployment and poverty amongst the 61 million people living in the U.S. who have a disability. In this podcast, we uncover the ways in which white, non-disabled bodies and minds have hoarded power in organizations for decades, and how we can advocate for universal policies and practices that increase workplace inclusion for all, ending the cycle of white supremacy and ableism at work. In this podcast, 
listeners will learn to confront complacency and ableism and begin to dismantle personal bias contributing to disability exclusion, learn to recognize the intersection of multiple systems of oppression, and discover opportunities to advance intersectional inclusion in the workplace. Allie Strong-Martin, she, her pronouns, Business Development and Innovation Assistant at LifeWorks, is a 2019 alum of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, where she earned her master's degree in human rights with a focus in gender, disability, and international development. She also holds bachelor's degrees in nonprofit leadership and international studies. Additionally, Allie serves on the board of directors of for the Minnesota-based nonprofit Disability Support International, and she serves on the leadership team of the Critical Disability Studies Collective at the University of Minnesota. Ali is currently based in Minneapolis and works on the innovation and inclusion team of a Twin Cities disability service provider. She provides critical support to efforts to educate and train employers, disability organizations, and community members on disability rights and disability inclusion in the workplace and in the community at large. Ali believes that in order to advance true disability inclusion, organizations must be willing to learn about topics such as ableism, intersectionality, disability, identity slash culture, and principles of radical disability justice. Ashley Ullman, disability inclusion consultant at LifeWorks, guides partners through evidence-based best practices, products development, and progressive thought leadership. From large corporations to individual allies, she transforms strategic business initiatives and advances equitable community spaces. With more than a decade of leadership experience in advocacy, employment, and workplace culture, she understands how to navigate complex environments and provide actionable insights for growth. Ashley strives to advance community equity through her contributions on a collective impact task force and serves on a coalition of providers supporting transracially adopted youth to reinforce the development of positive black identity. In her free time, she enjoys creating space to coach local parents on inclusive parenting, including children in critical conversations. Ashley earned an MBA with a concentration on human resource management, a BA in psychology with a minor in human development and family studies, and a certification in organizational diversity and inclusion. Most recently, Ashley was selected as a Josie R. Johnson Leadership Academy Fellow and accepted into the YWCA's Racial Justice Facilitator Program. She is committed to inclusion as a means to advance human rights for all people in all walks of life. Thank you so much for that introduction, Ben. We are so excited to be here today. As Ben mentioned, my colleague and I are here to present today on interlocking inequities, which is all about ableism and white supremacy. We're here because we believe that intersectional action is necessary to unlock liberation. And a couple of things that we wanted to do before we really started to dive in. First, we wanted folks to acknowledge our own contributions. The need for DEI work essentially exists because of historical and modern inequity that our society reproduces. And so as we work through some of the topics today, the, the big takeaway that we want folks to leave with is just the fact that our work essentially is relevant because things need to change. So with that, I wanted to kick us off with a little bit of a reflection. I'm going to ask you all a question um, and just take a moment to think about this individually. 
pause and think. Do you talk about oppression or intersection intersectionality in a consistent and meaningful way at work? There's no right or wrong answer, but essentially it's important for us to really think about, you know, when we do equity work in our workplaces and when we try to promote inclusion, it's really, really important for us to be talking about um, the root causes, the core of the issues that we're trying to solve. And so when Allie and I have been doing research and work and presenting on this topic, we really try to get at uh, the core of the topics, um, in this case, oppression and intersectionality. All right, so I'm going to make a couple of promises to you all about what we are planning on accomplishing for this podcast today. Uh, first, what we want to do is confront complacency and ableism and begin to dismantle personal bias that's contributing to disability exclusion. Next, we plan on recognizing multiple systems of oppression and how they work together. And then hopefully by the end of this, everyone will be able to plan at least one concrete action that you can take to advance intersectional inclusion in the workplace. So with all of that uh, being said, I just wanted to say hey on my own. My name is Ashley. I identify with she, her pronouns. Um, and I'm joined here today with my amazing colleague, Allie, who will introduce herself in just a moment. This topic is really, really important to Allie and I because I also identify as a Black neurodivergent woman. Allie will talk a little bit more about her uh, relationship with disability, but she's coming from a different perspective um, regarding race. And so we've had tons of conversations just about the ways that our disabilities show up, the way that our race overlaps with that, the way um, that we've been treated, the way that we've been supported. Um, and so that's really how we wanted to start this session is just talking a little bit more about how um, our lives have contrasted um, in similar and different ways. So I will start off with just sharing that I, I as I mentioned, am a neurodivergent uh, Black woman. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 21. And uh, part, part of my story is that that really stands out to me is that there were essentially what I reflect back on is lower expectations for me um, as an individual. Um, as I mentioned, I was 21 when I finally went and got myself um, assessed because I was finally in college and just starting to really recognize that things that um, the, the way that the classes that I was in or the, the assignments that I was given were just structured in a way that was not working for me. Um, the, the thing about uh, the lower expectations is it's there were signs of um, possible like support needed or some type of intervention or even just a conversation about the ways that um, I was learning differently or kind of showing up in the classroom differently. But um, I've wondered often if I was of a different race, if my predominantly white educators would have invested um, in my education or in my potential in a different way. So for example, um, I would sometimes get report cards um, just kind of saying like, oh, Ashley has a lot of potential, but, um, and it'd be really open-ended without any plans or action steps or ways that um, I could be supported differently, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I've oftentimes wondered 
if I was a white male student, would there have been more effort put into my potential? And I oftentimes reflect and wonder if my identity groups were different, um, if I would have been diagnosed sooner, if my potential would have been seen as more valuable to society, um, if folks would have been more concerned with or invested in uh, the outcome of my education, and especially, mo most importantly, um, if the setting and the environment that I was a part of would have been seen as the problem versus my lack of ability um, to assimilate to it. So with that, I'll kick it over to Allie so she can finally get some airtime and talk a little bit about herself too. Thanks, Ashley, and hello, everyone. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Um, like Ashley said, my name's Allie. Um, my pronouns are she, her. And I do work with Ashley at LifeWorks, where I have worked since 2019, uh, since I graduated with my master's from the University of Minnesota. And I want to kick off my introduction by saying that I am entering this space with you today with considerable privilege. So one facet of my personal privilege is, as I just mentioned, that I hold multiple post-secondary educational degrees. And I also come into this space as a white cisgender woman with a non-apparent or invisible disability. So my race and gender identity afford me privilege because of racism and cisgenderism, um, but also the nature of my disabilities afford me privilege because of ableism in our society and because I can quote pass for being non-disabled in most spaces as I get to choose whether or not I disclose my disability. So similar to Ashley um, in her adult life diagnosis, um, I had lived with a anxiety disorder for over a decade before I was ever officially diagnosed as an adult at age 22, um, when I learned that it was something that could actually be addressed or that I didn't have to hide in shame about, um, or that I wasn't the only person in the world with, you know, what I had been taught my whole childhood was a quote unquote problem. Um, also at age 22, I received um, in addition to that anxiety disorder, I received a co-occurring diagnosis of depression uh, while I was in graduate school. And looking back to when I first sought out professional support, I know that and I can see now that my race and my class privilege had a lot to do with the treatment I received and how I was received myself, I think, when I went to access that treatment. So first of all, my whiteness was definitely centered. Um, Layla F. Saad um, in her book, Me and White Supremacy, she talks about white centering as the reality that white feelings, just like white people, white values and white norms are pretty much always centered over everyone and everything else. And as a white woman, I have been taught both implicitly and explicitly throughout my entire life 
that my comfort and my psychological and physical safety is to always be centered. And BIPOC women um, and even BIPOC men are not taught that same message typically. And in fact, white women's perceived comfort and safety um, and the power of white men whom we are close to has historically been centered to the point that violence has even been perpetrated against BIPOC individuals in order to uphold that um, comfort and further center that safety of white people. And secondly, in my experience, um, when my racial identity of whiteness combined with my socioeconomic status of middle class, that contributed to um, real generational wealth and educational privilege that I mentioned earlier. So when I needed access to professional support, I did have access to many resources um, without many questions asked. So I had access to insurance, which I see as an example or an extension of uh, generational wealth as I personally at age 22 was still on my parents' insurance plan. I also had access to pretty high quali quality therapy on my university's campus, which again, I see as an extension of my educational privilege. Um, access to therapy itself is not cheap. And if you are uninsured, that's especially true. Um, and people of color are statistically uninsured at higher rates than white people like myself. And furthermore, unlike the experience of many BIPOC individuals, I had access to a mental health provider with whom I shared a similar racial or cultural background. Um, we know as of 2016, only about 4% of all practicing psychologists in the US were black. So I guess in summary, we really wanted to talk about this because on the surface, Ashley's experience and my own experience don't seem to be all that different in that we were both diagnosed at age you know, 21 for Ashley and 22 for myself um, with invisible or non-apparent disabilities. But when we go deeper and look at different aspects of our identities, like our race and socioeconomic class when we were young, um, these experiences start to really diverge from one another. And like Ashley wondered if she would have been treated differently if she was a white male student, I wonder, and when I think about it, if I was a black woman like Ashley is, I am not convinced that my dignity would have been upheld in the same way that it did for me as a white woman when I did seek treatment for my mental health. And I'm not convinced that I would have been believed in the same way um, as I was. And this is a lot of this is because I have not as a white woman been forced to live with stereotypes like the quote strong black woman or the caretaker caricature that tries to convince black women and women of color that asking for help um, with their mental health is not a luxury that's afforded to them. So um, I will link an article in the show notes that talks more about that phenomenon um, if you're interested in reading it. 
So we did want to talk and introduce ourselves in that way. Um, but before we keep going, we did want to pause and offer another chance for you, the listener, for personal reflection on some important questions that came up for each of us as we were unpacking um, our own individual experiences that we just went through. So these are some questions. I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then Ashley is going to also ask a few. Um, these are questions that you might reflect on now um, or you know, after we leave um, this time together. So the first questions that came up for me that would have been impactful in the workplace is asking yourself, do your colleagues at your workplace talk openly about their disabilities? And then taking it a step further and asking yourself, have you ever had a supervisor with a disability? My questions are, is there validation of black culture in your organization? And also, is there actual evidence of equitable progress at work? Great, thank you, Ashley. And again, these are just some things to be thinking about and to get us um, you know, transitioning into, as we'll discuss further, the intersections of race and disability. So I'm going to kick us off with talking a little bit about oppression as systems. And we know that oppression is um, multiple systems that maintain both advantage and disadvantage based on social group memberships. So oppression privileges some groups while hurting others, and it is both historically rooted and maintained at the present moment as we speak. And oppression can be understood as a larger umbrella term for the many, many, many isms in our society. So some of these, just to name a few, are ableism, ageism, classism, cisgenderism, heterosexism, racism, sexism, sizeism, and I'm sure you can add multiple more examples to that list. So today we're diving deep into just two of these forms of oppression and as ableism and racism as manifested in white supremacy. But we know that we can't get rid of just one ism and that that will dismantle oppression. So what we're going to be talking about today is that all of these combinations of social power and discrimination are interlocked and they really depend on each other for their continued maintenance and um, survival. So I'm going to take us through a couple quick definitions to frame our discussion and to name what exactly we're talking about. I do also want to say that I'm not the expert to really be talking about this. So I've been deeply impacted by the work of many, many um, disability justice activists, um, especially those of color in the past two years. And I have a lot more to learn from them. And if I have already learned from them, I'll be citing their names verbally. And we will also put any links to 
resources uh, created by these folks in the show notes you can access as well if you're interested. So definitions. So disability justice activist Talila A. Lewis in 2020 defined ableism as a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. This form of systemic oppression leads to people and society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance and or their ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and behave. Ableism also can be defined individuals as superior and as the standard of quote unquote normal living. And similarly, white supremacy treats whiteness as the standard of normal living. And I already mentioned author Layla F. Saad. Um, she also in 2020 defined white supremacy as a racist ideology or a system based on the belief that white people are superior in many ways to people of other races and therefore that white people should be dominant over other races. And so these concepts that are kind of coming up in these definitions like productivity, superiority, normalcy, conformity, value, and worth are some recurring themes that Ashley and I will continue to touch on throughout this podcast. But right now, we're going to switch gears for just a few minutes and kind of take a pause and think about what we think about. Um, I'm sure by now many of you have heard things like white supremacy is the air we breathe. And the same is really true about ableism and many of these systems of oppression. But we don't talk about it as much or it hasn't been as popular maybe in recent years as white supremacy has. So Ashley mentioned earlier that the need for DE&I work exists because of oppression and because of both historical and modern inequity. So we want to offer another couple of questions to reflect on. And I'll just pause for a moment and then we will keep going. So these questions to reflect on is what would your community look like if there was true racial equity? What would your community look like if there was true disability inclusion? In your day-to-day -day life, what would actually be different? And I think some people sometimes have a hard time answering that question because the ways in which dominant groups have historically been socialized and taught to think about both disability and race have not been equitable or inclusive. So if we can't, you know, answer that question easily, I think it is still an opportunity to dream big, but there's a, there's a reason why we aren't able to answer that question um, very quickly or easily sometimes. So Ashley and I have talked a lot about how important it is 
to be mindful of the way in which we think about the people and groups who are most impacted by our work and how our mindsets can either contribute further to oppressive systems or we can choose to contribute to liberation and equal rights. And a lot of mine and Ashley's research centers around uh, different models, different conceptual models of disability. Uh, we're not gonna get into them here in this podcast, but we wanted to share um, one of the resources um, that we've found on this topic and on the intersections of ableism and racism, um, an organization called the National Black Disability Coalition or the NBDC. And in their original work, the NBDC came up with a framework that talks about there's two underlying philosophies for how society thinks about disability. And they say that people with disabilities are either perceived as being dependent on society or perceived as equal members of society. And Ashley and I soon realized when we were talking about this that we could also extrapolate this to apply to other marginalized people groups. And we just think that, um, and Ashley will talk more to this in a second, but our mindset, specifically how that mindset translates into policies and actions, we really can make the choice to further contribute to oppression. And the National Black Disability Coalition describes that as resulting in real outcomes like paternalism, segregation, and discrimination. But on the other hand, our mindsets and actions can work towards liberation and equality. And the NBDC describes this as resulting in choice, empowerment, and equality of rights. And Ashley, I think you might have wanted to add something here. Yeah, thanks, Allie. Uh, the big thing for me when it comes to, you know, reflecting on the work of the Na National Black Disability Coalition um, and just framing our mindset, right, as either oppressive um, or liberating is just kind of that like deliberate framework that I think is so critical to the work that we all do. So, you know, I'm sure we've all heard people around us um, saying or questioning like, but it's not always about race, right? But it's not, it's not because this person has a disability, it's because I'm looking for the best candidate. Or, you know, we, we kind of like, we tend to, tr to, to lean into that minimizing of identity or minimizing, um, you know, different, different parts of, of people and who they are and who they show up as. And so what I really liked as Ali and I were, were um, just like gobbling up this information and starting to apply it to the places um, and the spaces that we were being a part of is, is making it really like black and white, like making it really this or that. And obviously we know that life and work exists in gray, um, but that kind of, that, that, that call to um, being accountable essentially to like making a decision, like how can we ensure that the, the actions that we're taking or the way that we're planning um, or the way that we're talking or the way that we're advertising, you know, it can be applied to so many, so many different business areas, but essentially it's like, how can we make decisions and take actions to make sure that every little tiny thing we do 
falls under um, what is going to result in liberation versus oppression. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to share that little bit just because it's like, you know, I don't, I don't think we necessarily think like, is the way that I'm sending this email supporting the liberation of my, you know, or like is the way that um, the way that I'm, I'm structuring this training or, you know, whatever it is, you know, I don't, I don't think we necessarily think about our day to day tasks as liberating or oppressive. But when we do take a second to do that, I think it helps us to really be more critical of how, um, how we're showing up and how we're creating space um, and, whether, and whether or not we are. So that's all I wanted to share. Great, thank you, Ashley. I'm really happy that you, that you added that. Um, so that's great. So we did want to take just a minute and I'm gonna, before handing it back over to Ashley to finish us, um, to finish our discussion off, um, we did want to take a minute and be really explicit about how ableism and white supremacy really interlock and connect. And we see that when we say the phrase white non-disabled supremacy in our podcast description. So what do we mean when we say white non-disabled supremacy? I first heard the following definition of ableism last year from disability justice activist Asa Altirafi. And Asa defined ableism as a system that is designed at its core to categorize and rank bodies and minds as either normative or deviant as valuable or disposable, and as productive or burdensome. And white supremacy, we know, also ranks bodies and minds using similar categories as either white and therefore superior, therefore deserving of dominant status, or as non-white and inferior, therefore de deserving of subjugation. And if this sounds familiar, I think that there are multiple parallels here to, and Ashley and I have talked about this, to the characteristics of white supremacy culture that you may have been talking about in your organization um, or in different social circles, especially recently, but these conversations have been happening for many, many decades. Um, but if it sounds recently familiar, I think there's a reason why. So just a few of the characteristics of white supremacy culture that I see really tying in deeply to ableism specifically are perfectionism, the idea that there's only one right way, and the right to comfort. So I'll just really quickly um, tie these in. So perfectionism, we see this as relating to ableism and the, the aspect of um, conformity. So um, disability is often seen as a deviation from quote unquote normal. So, um, you know, there's it, perfectionism also ties into um, this idea under white supremacy culture that there's only one right way. Um, and that ties into ableism because ableism tells us that there's only one right way to look, there's only one right way to act, to think, behave, or to move our bodies. And 
that's not the case at all. But we've been sold these lies by both white supremacy culture and ableism that this is the case. Um, the last thing that we see really tying in uh, between white supremacy culture and ableism is uh, the right to comfort. So we've seen this um, really unfortunately play out in the past year um, as the COVID-19 pandemic has continued to surge. And we've really seen ableist approaches and responses to the pandemic. And we've seen the ease in which I think we've seen non-disabled people have really clearly and easily demonstrated um, their view of disabled and elder people as disposable in this pandemic. And so we just really wanted to investigate and kind of connect these realities. Um, there's many more connections that I think that we can make um, and that I hope that, that you can make um, on your own between white supremacy and ableism. But we thought that, that by providing just a couple of these examples um, is just one way in which we can begin to confront our own complacency and to really be um, challenging our own preconceived biases. Um, and again, this complacency and ableism and that this is one way to confront and both dismantle um, this personal bias that um, that may be contributing to overall disability exclusion. So what is the big deal about ableism and why do we care about talking about white non-disabled supremacy? So in ways parallel to other systems of oppression, such as racism and sexism, ableism is a really huge barrier to the capacity of the 1 billion people with disabilities worldwide and the 61 million people with disabilities in the US to live really truly fully included lives um, in fully inclusive, accessible and equitable communities. So I could go on and talk for many more minutes about the importance of this topic, um, but Ashley actually already has uh, talked about it. So for a more in-depth look at how both ableism and discrimination impact the lives of people with disabilities, I would really recommend listening to Ashley's previous forum on workplace inclusion podcast that she recorded last year. And I believe that's number episode number 45. And on that note, I will hand it back over to Ashley to finish out our discussion today um, as she leads us through some opportunities to advance intersectional inclusion in the workplace. Thanks, Allie. So as she mentioned, this last bit of time that we have together is going to be more focused on taking action. You know, we've talked about things that hopefully you've been vigorously nodding to um, and giving snaps to. But now uh, we want to just make sure that as we're closing, we're talking about some things that can actually be done, like effective immediately. So to start that off, 
I do want to demystify the system um, and kind of make this topic a little bit more personal. We tend to talk about we, meaning we as humans in society, but even as professionals who work in DE&I, we talk often about things like ableism and racism as things that are happening um, versus things or actions that we're doing minute by minute, minute by minute that are upholding these systems. So what, like I mentioned, what I want to do is kind of just demystify uh, all of that and kind of weed through the ways in which the system is effectively working to do what it was intended to do, but more importantly, what we can be doing about that. All right, so when it comes to oppression at the systemic level, we essentially know that systems uphold the values or privileges that they were built to support and protect. This happens in part because we as individuals fail to think past those systems that could be radically different from what we've always known. I, I oftentimes tend to think about why and then why some more and why some more. So stating that again, we fail to think past systems that are radically different from what we've always known. And when I asked myself why, one hunch that I have is because there's a, a sense of security in what we've always known or what we've done, even if we know and recognize it's not working for everyone. So when I continued to ask myself and pick apart, you know, why, why, you know, why are, why, why are we kind of stalled out or stuck trying to recreate a system that continues to perpetuate harm? Uh, and what can we do about that? I really believe that part of that is shedding the comfort of the way that things have already been, which then means that we have to embrace the idea of discomfort and unknowns, right? Um, all right, so the next up, when it comes to just individuals, we we sometimes struggle, like we were talking about, um, with that breakdown of liberating versus oppressive. We don't tend to think about the things that we do as liberating or oppressive. We don't tend to recognize the patterns that we contribute to um, that absolutely support the systems and the policies and the practices that are continuing to perpetuate that harm. So essentially what I'm saying is, we will as individuals be oppressive if we don't acknowledge and unlearn untrue and problematic beliefs. Also, we have to take responsibility for the actions that we take. So this means moving beyond good intentions or moving beyond um, you know, the, the things that are going to uh, be the fastest maybe, or maybe even be the most efficient. Like sometimes we have to let go of the things that we've always done um, because the reasons why we're acting are different now. Uh, I do have a spoiler alert, especially when it comes to uh, white able-bodied supremacy, to find, to, to come up with solutions and to find answers in this space, you're never going to be able to come up with the answers as a white non-disabled person. Um, but the spoiler alert is you're not supposed to and that's the point. So if you're sitting um, or standing or wherever, however you um, are getting this information through our podcast episode and all along you've been like, yeah, that you know, this makes sense and yeah, I wanna do something about it. Um, Allie and I definitely recommend that you start digging into the work that's already been done. The best thing that any of us can do, especially when it comes to uh, a group of folks that we're not a part of, is like listen to what folks have been saying all along and start to uh, use what folks have been saying to have an impact and truly influence the decisions that 
that you're making. All right, so now I want to talk about a, a, a section called Truth Hurts. I always tend to bring these four topics to almost any conversation um, or presentation that Allie and I do, um, just because people who are marginalized live in a society that's filled with stereotypes and prejudice that are intertwined within our day-to-day -day life. Uh, and really what we need to do, especially as DE and I, you know, professionals and practitioners, um, we have to confront these realities of how we show up if we want to uproot and move our organizations forward. So my truth hurts topics of today are stigma, privilege, tokenism, and savior complex. Stigma is essentially just entrenched ideas and concepts that negatively impact policies and decisions, um, and it impedes people's ability to participate fully in whatever it is that we're doing, in this case, work. We also have privilege, which is uh, Latin for a law for just one. It essentially is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted um, that's only available to a particular group. Tokenism, if you don't know, um, is making only a symbolic effort to do a particular thing. Um, it could be including people. It could be adjusting marketing materials, whatever it might be. Um, this especially shows up in when, when we're talking about representation and wanting to give an appearance of what people have lovingly been saying, a seat at the table lately. Um, and then the last one is savior complex. This, this, this truth refers to a state of mind or actions in which an individual believes they are responsible for saving or assisting others. Often the help uh, in some context is perceived to be self-serving as well. So what does that mean for us? What can we do about all those things? The, the, the ultimate goal of me sharing all those things, um, because I'm sure you've heard the words before, is more so to just take a beat, maybe rewind, and think back. Um, when it comes to those entrenched ideas, you know, stigma, how is that showing up in your day-to-day -day interactions? How is that showing up possibly um, in different patterns within different groups at the organization that you work at? Uh, when it comes to privilege, I think we all know generally what privilege is, but how is privilege uh, showing showing its face at work, you know, how is it, where's the evidence of uh, how privilege plays a role in the way that you all work together? When it comes to tokenism, just don't do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> identify effective immediately the ways in which tokenism is happening. Um, if you haven't, if you haven't thought about it, or you haven't literally done a tokenism inventory, uh, I guarantee you it's happening, um, and that's something that is so harmful um, and absolutely can not only halt the work that you're wanting to do when it comes to um, intersectional inclusion, but it also can literally take take you backwards um, and cause harm. And then when it comes to the savior complex, again, you know, we all do this work for a reason. I'm sure you've heard of savior complex before. Um, it's tends to be, you know, we're in these roles and we're doing this work because we believe in it. We're doing this work because we want things to be different. Um, and because we, we believe that, that that's all possible. When it comes to savior complex, though, again, we just have to make sure um, that our intentions and the way that we're approaching our work, again, isn't getting in the way of people being able um, 
to exist in space as themselves and be authentic. Um, and that, that the work that we're doing and the efforts and the initiatives that we're leading isn't about what we want to get out of it or what the business needs out of it, but more so, um, you know, the folks that it's intended to be supporting in the first place. All right, all right. So we got you survived my truth hurts section. Um, and now I want to just talk about the ways that we can actually start to unlock some transformation in our workplace culture. First up, as I sl slightly just mentioned, we have to say bye to our business case, <laughs> which I know for some of you, you're probably thinking, what? We're not going to lead with the ways that this is solely going to benefit the business. Yes, that's exactly what you're going to do. You can write it down and then crumple it up and put it in a recycling bin. Um, because if we want to be effective in intersectional inclusion um, at work, we have to recognize that first and foremost, this is counterculture actions. This is counterculture behavior. This is um, not the norm at all and absolutely going against the grain of the way that we work, especially here in the US. Um, so not saying that you can never think about how um, intersectional inclusion can and, and likely will benefit the business. But what, what I am saying is that we cannot lead with the ways that this is going to benefit us or how we are going to get something out of it, um, because then that's what we're doing it for and we're inevitably going to fall short. Um, so what are some actual tangible things that you can be doing um, to start to be more counterculture? First up is addressing dominant uh, mindset and language. So when I say dominant, I mean dominant groups. So that could be dominant racial groups, that could be dominant gender groups, that could be dominant, whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> no matter what identity you know, you're thinking about, there's people that are in a larger group and there are people that are in a smaller group. Um, and the ways, the ways that dominant groups are controlling language or mindset or even unspoken or unwritten rules um, is one way that we can make sure, like if we really want people to feel like they belong, what are the ways that we um, are adjusting to make that happen? All right, next is leverage unearned benefits and resources. So we were kind of talking a little bit about privilege. Allie talked a ton in her kind of beginning intro about the ways that her identity has just like granted her some certainty of being less vulnerable, right? Like granted her some certainty on the degree of dignity that she can expect when she goes places um, or accesses resources or whatever it is. Um, that's privilege is not just something that applies to individuals. It also absolutely applies to groups and organizations, especially when we're talking about groups and organizations that are essentially um, run by, led by, owned by, you know, dominant homogenous groups. So, you know, think about the organization that you work for, who owns it, who operates it, who are your, you know, stakeholders, who are, who's your clientele. Um, either way it goes, no matter who you are, there are likely going to be some benefits, especially if um, your, your company is owned or operated by folks from dominant groups, um, there's likely going to be some unearned benefits or resource, resources, such as uh, we know that white folks have an easier time accessing capital, right? Like we just know that. We know um, that because, you know, 
folks from dominant groups don't have to face the degrees of like diversity and intentional barriers. Uh, there are just certain things that are smoother or easier um, or less less of a challenge or less of a burden um, for, for dominant groups to address. So one way that Allie and I have been working with businesses um, to think about this and to put this to action is like, what are some things, what are some things in your infrastructure that you have in abundance that like you could be sharing with either the community, um, maybe it's even competitors, right? But it's competitors from marginalized groups that are, let's be certain, serving the population of folks that they are a part of better than um, folks from outside that group could. Um, another couple of examples are things like, you know, compliance and policy. We all, you know, work in different industries, but one thing is the same. We, industry loves documentation. Um, and we all have some degree of licensing standard or some type of mandated documentation that we have to do. Those are things that lots of organizations that have been around for a long time just have. We've done the work. We've got relationships with, you know, licensors or whoever it is that's making the rules, right? Um, and if you're able to package that stuff up and share it with um, community members or share it with people so that they can better understand how to compete, that can be a really great way to start to enhance um, the ways that you think about being counterculture. All right, a couple more. Set the bar higher than slight improvements. And I know that's a little bit sassy, but it's I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. We tend to make goals that are things that we can achieve, right? Like I've done that before. I'm like, okay, self, I'm gonna exercise. And my goal in the next six months is to lose two pounds. Why did I say two pounds? Because I know I could do it. But if I really wanted to change my healthy habits, right? I'd be like, I'm going to um, really be more effective at making better healthy choices every day for the next year. This. This type of work in the workplace is the same thing. It's a long, it's a marathon, right? So by measuring the things that, again, we're going to get in the short term or by measuring the things that we think we can achieve in the short term, especially if they're surface level, is not going to have the same type of impact as if we say, listen, we want to do this relatively challenging thing or this thing that people haven't been able to do. We want to make sure that our leadership uh, positions are representative of all of these different, you know, populations that it doesn't right now. Um, but yeah, setting your goals in a way that is um, more aspirational versus rapidly attainable is definitely, definitely the way to go. If indeed your goal is essentially to be making a difference in the way that your company works. And then last up is ending cycles of violence internally. And I use that word violence very intentionally. Um, I'll use violence and harm pretty interchangeably. But again, we don't necessarily think of the way that we clap back in an email as violent or um, the way that we, you know, lean into our power um, stifling people's ability to participate as violent when indeed it is. Um, so if you if you haven't ever thought about little you know little interactions, day to day interactions at work, and how indeed they could show up as violence, I would definitely encourage you um, to start to just do some digging to to better understand how can I or we unintentionally perpetuate um, racial violence, right, or ableist violence. Um, when when I'm doing like typical regular things. All right. 
And then I'm just going to move us into a little bit of policies and practices because again, we all love our rules. Rules are rules. Um, but how do we apply an intersectional lens so that our work actually works for everyone? As Ali and I have been talking about all along, we've got to get at the root causes of oppression that have perme permeated even our own organizations. So four little takeaways for you all. First is that we have to center on expanding collective power. I'm going to go on a limb here and make an assumption um, that you likely work in an organization that is very structured. Everybody has their role. People at the top make decisions. People at the bottom don't. Um, but if we, especially because we know that workplaces reflect the same oppression um, and harmful cycles that our communities do, right? So we don't have enough diversity um, in positions of power, AKA making decisions. So if we really wanna be counterculture and if we really wanna uproot those root causes of oppression within our work, place, we have to start doing things like being okay with people from any level of an organization, um, contributing to decision making, right? Having a say in major decisions that are happening. We also need to make sure that we are mandating access to information. Again, we tend to be, there's certain things, of course, that we can't just share with everyone, and that's fair enough due to privacy or whatever it is. Um, but then we start to apply those rules in in ways that aren't necessarily um, mandatory or necessary. So an example of that is like, oh, well, only people at this level of the organization can have access to that folder. And it's like, well, if there's not private information, um, information as possible, so that people are able to better understand uh, what happens in different departments or what happens at different levels. Um, and again, just having that transparency of information um, is critical. One other little way that just came to mind where that kind of shows up is like when a big decision is coming out or we have to communicate about something difficult. We all went through that in 2020 with COVID and decisions, hard decisions that had to be made, closures and openings and mask requirements and things like that. Um, you know, we worry, I think sometimes a little bit too much about like, what are people going to think or say, and don't give people the opportunity to just receive information in a way that's timely and relevant um, and unfiltered. And so that is a huge way um, that we can make sure that, you know, we're not, we're not giving people the parts of, of information or the pieces that we think are relevant, but rather they're able to have access to all information and make decisions that are important for themselves. All right, and then lastly, when it comes to policies and practices and uprooting oppression is same as that, as the, the last kind of area that we were talking about, but it's ending cycles of violence, but now this time externally. So not just thinking about the ways that we perpetuate violence with our day-to-day -day interactions, but now taking it a step further and making sure that the way that we structure our rules or the ways that we, um, interact with our clients or stakeholders or community or what you know whoever it is that your work uh, supports and just making sure that yet again we don't unintentionally leave things that are barriers or that are harmful in the rules that kind of govern how we handle what we do so the last thing that i wanted to share before we close 
is what Allie and I have been lovingly calling our intersectional roadmap. Um, it's just four, four areas to be focusing on. Um, but if you want to start this today, I would, we would recommend that you work on confronting complacency, adjusting folks' mindset, taking ownership of your actions, and then shifting power. If you had to do only four things, those would be the four things that we recommend that you do. And then the last little closing thought that we wanted to share is that there's always another path forward. So even if and when you come up against, you know, resistance or you feel like things are kind of sputtering out, you're maybe losing momentum, um, there's always another path forward, meaning that there's always a way that we can shift and pivot together. Um, and we just encourage you to do that. So thank you so much for your time today. We're excited um, to hear from listeners about what they might be doing moving forward. Feel free to get in touch with us. We will have our contact information in the show notes. Um, one of our favorite things is essentially just hearing the thoughts that folks had and the, the ways that they've started to incorporate some of these thoughts and ideas. So good luck. Thank you so much, Allie and Ashley, for this wonderful podcast. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And a special thank you to our sponsor, Best Buy. To learn more, you can email Allie and Ashley directly at astrongmartin at lifeworks.org and aolman at lifeworks.org. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.